0: You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Well, good morning. As I mentioned, my name is Ben and I am one of the pastors here At King's Church, it is good to see you all. Some of you may not know this, but Washington, D.C. makes it pretty high on the list of cities where people go for their first job, as evident by all the hands that went up just a little bit earlier as we were talking about the cicadas. Uh, When talking to people who freshly come to the city, uh, I get the privilege of sometimes hearing horror stories or uh, bad office experiences with first-time job experiences. Now, I don't share this too often, but I, too, had a terrible first-time job experience when I started being a pastor. I was hired as an associate pastor in my hometown of Buffalo, New York, and when I was hired, I was told I was hired for all different types of duties that I really liked. But when I got there, I was pleasantly surprised. I was made the director of the women's ministry, which was essentially 70 to 100-year-old women. I was the director of the high school program, which essentially was two or three kids. And I got to lead the church's training program, which was really the only redeemable part of that job. Uh, Now, I rolled with it for a while, but I quickly became aware of the insanity that was the lead pastor as well as many members of that church who were some of the most difficult individuals that I have ever come across in my life, and I hope that none of them are listening this morning. Uh, I remember the pastor of that church, the lead pastor in particular, coming in completely and totally drunk and falling asleep in the fireside room, which was uh, kind of a mess room of the church. Uh, I remember being at that church and having that particular lead pastor leading the staff like we were a varsity football locker room. And I remember him leading that same staff into things that had completely nothing to do with God or church, things like roofing and snow removal and home repair. He was in way over his head, we might say. Now on top of that, it seemed like several members of that church seemed to not have any type of real faith. Uh, Often conversations in that church with members revolved around other members they hated. Uh, My role in returning the church to its golden years in the 1950s, as well as whether or not I hated or if I loved the lead pastor, they were really divided on that. Uh, It was a nightmare. I quit after 365 days, which is 364 days too long, and I never looked back. Uh, But it was a lesson in many ways. Uh, It was a church that lost its way. Now today, what we'll see in our passage is that the goal of a healthy church, one that stays on target, is to be like Jesus. Uh, The goal of Christians coming together like this morning and saying we're a family is to collectively be like Jesus Christ. And a church that's like Jesus is a church that is selfless and true. And so today that's my main idea, and you'll see it up on the screen. A church like Jesus is a church selfless and true. Now, this is a tough passage. People are getting killed in this passage. At first glance, uh, there seems like there's a hint of Christian communism going on in this passage, but we're going to get through it. And God has a lot to say to us this morning. And what we'll see is that a church like Jesus is a church that is selfless and true. Now the outline is going to be up on the screen, and it's really simple today. Point one, radical unselfishness. We'll see that in Acts 4.32 through 37. That's the first part of this passage. And then point two, dangerous hypocrisy. We'll see this in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, which is the second part of this passage. Now, a little bit of context as we really kind of kick off into the first point here this morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been going through the book of Acts. Uh, This is uh, shorthand for the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Acts is essentially a living testimony of the ongoing work of Jesus through the Spirit in the early church. We've had a front row seat in the last few weeks so far where we've seen God relaunch and reboot his people through the powerful coming of the Spirit. We've had a front row seat seeing some amazing miracles where John and Peter, by the power of the Spirit, healed a man. We've seen powerful sermons from the Apostle Peter where he preaches the gospel and thousands of people believe. And we've seen the early church face trials, difficulties with boldness and prayer as God gave them power for his work. But now we come to this section and we're brought backstage. We're given a really close look at the interior life of the church, the insides. And in this first part, we'll see a description of the culture of the church as radically unselfish. They were transformed by faith in Jesus in such a way that they were a tight-knit community. They took care of each other. As one pastor noted, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The rest of society was stingy with their money and promiscuous with its body. Society gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body, and they gave practically everybody their money. Lucian, who I quoted a few weeks ago, who was a Greek philosopher and an opponent of the Christian faith, even said of Christians, their founder taught them that they should be like brothers and sisters to one another, and therefore they despise their own privacy and view their possessions as common property. Uh, The church modeled being a family. They had each other's back. It wasn't just an event that they went to on Sunday morning. It was a faith family in good times and bad times. They knew everything belonged to God, and therefore they had an open hand with their possessions, and they were filled with love. Now, today we don't just say, oh, that's nice, like we're at a museum. We want to increasingly ask God to make us this kind of church. We want to increasingly ask God with faith to make us these kinds of people, to knit us together and transform us into the kinds of Christians and the kind of church that he calls us to be. Now notice a few things about this first passage. First, in the first part of this passage, we see where this kind of radical unselfishness comes from. And second, in the first part of this passage, we'll see where this radical unselfishness, how it looks, how it's experienced. So first, where does this type of radical unselfishness come from? Verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. So it comes from faith. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. See, the point of our lives changes when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. When you know Jesus, your heart is transformed. Instead of a world where God is distant, where God is impersonal, where he's disinterested in your life, where success and winning is the goal to life, through faith in Jesus, the real God is revealed. A God who gave himself away. A God who did not hold on to his power or his glory or his prestige, but he gave himself up for us. A God who died on a cross when we grasp that, when that transforms our life, it transforms everything. It changes the way we view this world. It shows us that the point of life isn't about amassing possessions or power or reputation, but the point of life is giving ourselves away, giving ourselves up for others, sacrificing ourselves for others. And when that happens at an individual level, like it did for me 10 years ago, it revolutionizes your life. And when it happens collectively to a church, it changes the world. Which really leads us to the second thing I want to point out in this passage, what this actually looks like. What radical unselfishness looks like in real time. Verse 32. They were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common, and with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, notice this isn't literal communism. They're not giving all their money and property to a central church committee, and then the members are receiving some type of of salary. No, this is a spiritual family. Uh, This is a family that cares for one another. This is a family that's united together, and they're committed to God's work in the world together. Now, I see a few particular ways of how this fleshes out from these verses. First, there is a oneness or a unity among the early church. Verse 32, they are of one heart and soul. Uh, Notice it doesn't say that individually they were spiritual giants. It says that they were together and that they were one. Now, I like to beat up on this point a little bit too much, so I'll be careful this morning, Uh, but I do want to say that there is a particular element in the Christian faith that is individualistic, our personal relationship with God, our accountability to God, our trusting in Jesus, our salvation. Those things are really important and really, really significant. But there's also a collective dynamic in the Christian faith that's often overlooked. Our relationship to God, our work, our team, our faith, and that's really, really important. And today, unfortunately, it's very neglected. But I want to ask a question to us all this morning. Have you ever realized that the deeper you get into the spiritual lives of friends, the deeper you get into Jesus himself? Let me just ask that again. Have you ever realized that the deeper you get into the spiritual lives of friends, the deeper? you get into Jesus himself. Let me illustrate this with a famous C.S. Lewis thought. Uh, Lewis wrote a chapter on Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia, uh, Mere Christianity. Lewis wrote a chapter on friendship in his book, The Four Loves. And in the book, Lewis talks about how he, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings, and Charles, an English poet, were all best friends. And then one day tragedy strikes and Charles dies. And Lewis talks about how at first he tried to encourage himself that now because Charles was gone, he would get more of Tolkien. They could be best friends. They could go deeper together. He actually said he'll have more of Tolkien, he thought. But after a few weeks went by, he realized that he was wrong. He actually had less of Tolkien. It was because there was a side of Charles that only Tolkien could bring out. And when when Charles left, that was no longer possible. And then he began to think about it. And in his chapter, he talks about how it takes a community to really know a person. How people are complex and how one person can't draw out all of someone. It's only seeing them relate to other people or grow with other people that we really see the whole picture. And then Lewis thinks about it a little bit. And he says, wait a minute, if this is true with a complex human being, how much more true is this with the Lord Jesus Christ? And it is. If we try to do faith alone, if we try to do faith individualistically We won't see the whole picture. We'll miss so much of God's character. We'll miss so much of God's will. And I encourage you this morning, don't keep your faults or your struggles private. Uh, Don't keep your home and all your money private. Don't keep your relationship with God private. Deepen your relationship with the church. Deepen your relationship with other Christians. Get accountability. Join the church. Get to know the Lord deeper as part of his body. Now, if that's tough for you to go deep with Christians, or perhaps when you meet other Christians, you don't feel these incredible ties or these incredible bonds, I want to encourage you that you're not alone. But I do also want to exhort you to make Jesus, choose to make Jesus the center of those relationships. Not the personality that's in front of you or the personality that you're dealing with, but choose to make Christ the core. Uh, There's something really great that you have in common beyond any difference that you might perceive. The other way I think this radical unselfishness plays out is through real sharing, verse 32. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. So because of the power of the Spirit and real faith, they were radically unselfish in what they had. Their unity in Jesus was so deep that they weren't mastered by stuff, they were mastered by him. And many of the needs that were evident in that early church were met by people who stepped up and invested in the lives of others. Now, I don't want to overcomplicate this this morning. When we work the gospel into our hearts and see the unity and the calling that we have as God's children, I think this comes naturally. If you struggle with this one, just remember God's given us people to love and things to use, not people to use and things to love. As the famous missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Ultimately, the gospel of Jesus makes us generous. We will want to use our time, our talent, and our treasures for others because it shows off the fact that Jesus died for us when we get this, I think think what this does, I think how this changes our lives, it screams to the world that we've got a better deal. We're being freed from materialism. We're not enslaved and defined by what we have or what we don't have. We're free. We're so free that we can give ourselves away. We're ultimately defined by God and that changes everything. As the passage continues, we're introduced to one of really the big heroes in the book of Acts, Barnabas. He'll be mentioned 23 more times, and Barnabas exemplifies all of this radical unselfishness that we've been talking about. Verse 36, thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this really sets up sparks for what's about to happen. We're going to see a massive contrast in this second part of this passage with the radical unselfishness of the early church. We're going to see it contrasted with dangerous hypocrisy. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Quite intense. Now, about two months ago, I moved down Uh, the street. Um, I'm in Capitol Hill, and I moved just uh, down the road. And one of the first Saturday nights I was there, I was uh, going to bed around uh, 9.30 on a Saturday, making sure I was all ready for church. And all of a sudden, as I'm upstairs, I heard downstairs a loud pounding on the door, open up, open up, open up. A few seconds later, I heard the door open and then slam. At that moment, my heart rate, as you can imagine, shot through the roof. I quickly got up, and the first thing I think is, this is a home invasion. Uh, Within about two seconds, my gut reaction is to make a threat, and so I scream downstairs, I have a firearm, you have five seconds to get out of my house, five, four, three, two, one, and then I thought I had heard something. And so within about two seconds, I Grab my phone and for the first time ever in my life I called 911. And the operator picks up and I'm essentially at that point wheezing and I say, I think someone is in my house. And so she says, stay on the line, stay on the line. Do you have a firearm in the house? I say, of course not. And <laughs> she, she says, stay on the line, stay on the line. I'm, I'm your lifeline. Uh, I quickly share my address and She's calming me down, and I'm sitting in the top window, and all of a sudden, I see just within about a minute and 30 seconds, uh, officers swarming my house, the D.C. police, the Capitol police, the National Guard, and a helicopter. Um, At at that point, they're surrounding the house, the back, the front, and I'm thinking in my head, what is going on? Like, this is an outstanding response. (laughs) Uh, the, whole, the whole cavalry has arrived, so to speak. And, uh, like at worst, the worst that's possibly happening is people are, are, are downstairs stealing my, my books. And I'm looking at the, this army that's outside my house, and I saw a, a D.C. police officer approach my, my front door. And one of the officers says, It looks like somebody left a package. And at that point, my heart just sank even more. And I'm thinking, Oh man. Uh, anyways, uh, I come down and I was super embarrassed and no doubt UPS shouldn't be opening my door at 930, uh, but it was such a rush. That much law enforcement was was just nuts. It it did not make any sense at all. Now, what I didn't tell you and what I forgot in that moment is that level of law enforcement made absolute sense. I lived directly next door to two-time presidential uh, runner and Senator uh, from vermont Bernie Sanders and uh, so whether you, you, you love him or hate him this morning i 'm glad uh, i 'm feeling the burn, and I have quite a lot of security <laughs> at at my house. Uh, now I mention all that because the second part of this passage is is really really fierce uh, we 're in the new testament we 're not in the old testament we 're in the New Testament after the resurrection of Jesus, and god 's response to What seems like a lie is to strike two people dead. That's an outstanding response. This seems like disproportionate justice. But in this context, this level of fierceness makes absolute sense. It makes absolute sense because God was fiercely committed to the integrity and the unity of then the only church on earth. This was more than just a lie. The stakes were high, and the cement, so to speak, was really wet. And so hypocrisy like this, left unchecked, would have poisoned the culture of the first church. Essentially, it would have never gotten off the ground. The foundation would have crumbled. It would have destroyed the mission. And so God acts. And unlike the death penalty Debates today over the application, questions over the application of justice due to things like racial inequalities or false convictions or other concerns. God Almighty acts in perfect justice. He applies perfect justice with perfect wisdom and perfect love. And perhaps even like the the death penalty debates today with real questions about deterrence, God Almighty acts and uses this event as a real deterrent. Verse 11, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now, praise God when we've lied or when we've lacked integrity or when we've gloated, we've not been struck down dead. Uh, Our context is very different today. Uh, Today, even if the whole body of Christ in the United States went down into some scandal or was corrupted through some sin. There's enough strength in the tree worldwide to do the job. Uh, So I don't think there's a one-to-one parallel with this particular passage today and how we would apply this, uh, but God is still concerned with integrity. He's still concerned with the integrity of our lives individually and the integrity of his church. He wants us to walk in the truth. Now notice a few little observations from this second part of this passage. Number one, Ananias and Sapphira have bad integrity. Uh, The word integrity comes from the same root word integer. An integer is a whole number, like one, two, or three. It's not a fraction, like one half or two thirds or three three fourths. When we say someone has integrity, it means there's a wholeness there. There's a simplicity there. There's a realness there. Uh, Now notice again, the issue is not about how much or how little that they gave. It's all about integrity. Peter says to Ananias, While your property remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your own disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed lying in your heart? So Peter says, They're not obligated to give. He doesn't say they didn't give enough. He's not saying that private property was all of a sudden gone if you became a Christian. He was saying, why are you being so hypocritical? Now, the word hypocrisy comes from the Greek word for actor. Uh, To be an actor in the ancient world was essentially the same thing it is today, to perform, uh, to speak behind a mask. When we say someone is hypocritical, it simply means we're saying they're one way on the outside and another way in real life. Uh, They're acting. There's inconsistencies when they're with one crowd and with another. Uh, But integrity means we're not saying one thing and meaning another thing. It means we're not one way with one crowd and a different way with a different crowd. It means that there's consistency. I once heard a story of a wealthy businessman in his 20s who once told a story, or I should say a wealthy businessman, he was 90 when he told this story, how when he was in his 20s, he was just a clerk starting off his career. And he says that one day the boss of the big company he worked for was just kind of standing there, and he started telling him a joke, the boss to this young clerk. And the boss tells him the most awful, dirty horrible joke you could ever think of. And then this 90-year-old businessman recalls that at 20 years old, he just stood there and refused to laugh. He didn't find it funny. And the boss said, don't you think this is funny? Don't you think that joke is funny? And the 20-year-old responded, no, I think it's dirty. The boss looked at him and said, you got guts, kid, and promoted him on the spot. Now, integrity doesn't always work, like that, but that's consistency, that's integrity, and Ananias and Sapphira in this passage have none, and had that spread into the early culture of the church, things would have never taken off, things would have fallen apart, which really leads us to the second observation I'd like to make about hypocrisy, perhaps why it's so dangerous, and that's that deception is what hypocrisy is all about. Deception is what hypocrisy is all about. Jesus says you can boil all the commandments of God down to really two things, love God and love people. But deception or lying is the opposite of love. When we we lie, we in a sense enslave our neighbor. They're not free. Even if it's a small lie, we put them in a headspace or a reality that's not true. But when we tell the truth, they're free. They're in a headspace that is reality, that's true and real. When we lie, we create a level of dependence. We enslave a person to a degree to our goals and our desires. And when we lie, even out of love, we isolate that person from the real us. Lies, deception, hypocrisy, they always break community. They isolate. And this was a very potent poison that could have broken the back of the early church, and it's a poison that still divides the church worldwide today. Thirdly, notice that there is a sin underneath their sin. There is a motive for why they're being so hypocritical. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to use God to look righteous. They wanted to use God to look good. They ultimately were insecure in the fact that they had the righteousness of Jesus Christ. They were confused about Christianity. But I want to remind all of us this morning that Christianity is not about being perfect or being the best, it's not about power and glory. It's not about sensationalism or hype. It's about having at the core of who you are the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the perfection of Jesus Christ. And we get that as a gift through faith in Jesus. And and letting that truth seep into our hearts transforms our life. Now, that's really good news for the inconsistent person. At the heart of the Christian faith is the fact that Jesus came and did what we couldn't do for ourselves. Unlike any other religion or belief system out there, Christianity acknowledges it cannot be followed perfectly, and at the same time tells us of one who lived perfectly and followed perfectly in our place. Jesus had perfect integrity. He had perfect consistency. He was the same in both places. He never lied, and he never deceived. And at the very end of the day, Jesus executes the ultimate act of integrity. He sets his eyes on Jerusalem, and he goes to the cross. He keeps his promise. He fulfills God's promise, And everything comes down on him in that moment. Hell itself comes down on Jesus Christ, but he presses on and he says, no, I've made a promise. He stays consistent, even if it hurts. And he goes to the cross. and He dies for us, for our sin. It's good news this morning that if you find yourself in Jesus Christ, having faith in him this morning, we've been saved by the integrity of another. We've been saved by the promise-keeping Jesus Christ. And we keep looking to him for what he did, seeking to become like him more and more. Now, briefly, three application points from this message. Number one, hypocrisy is not the greatest sin or the deepest sin. The deepest sin is not being willing to repent. Hypocrisy is not the greatest sin. The greatest sin is not being willing to repent. We're all hypocrites. We're all inconsistent at times. We shouldn't be, but sometimes we are. Everybody, everywhere. Christian or not. But that's not the deepest sin. The deepest sin is not being willing to own it. Not being able to repent. Not being able to own up to what we did. When we make ourselves accountable to no one and out of pride not allow ourselves to get help and out of weakness just act to save face, we are on a troubling trajectory. Number two, there are good people in the church. There are good people in the church. If you've ever been slighted by a church or you have pain from the church, me too. It hurts. I quit being a pastor for a time. Uh, But there are really good people in the church. There are really good churches out there with real community and real intent to live by faith. Uh, They're not perfect, but they're filled with some good people. Uh, Don't give up. We here at King's Church highly, highly value faith-filled culture of community, of warmth, of friendship, of love, of personality, of mission, of joy, of forgiveness, and faith. That's all real. Number three, and finally, remember Jesus Christ. Life isn't about being more moral or about being more real. Some of the most real people I've ever met in my life are the most miserable, mean, joyless people that I've ever met. Life is ultimately not about us, not about us trying to become more authentic or real. Life is about him. Life is about Jesus, and he'll make you humble, he'll make you real, he'll make you alive, he'll make you bold, and at the same time, he'll give you life. Life is about the Son of God, who is filled with humor, who is filled with life, who is filled with joy, who is filled with integrity and truthfulness. He's your forgiveness this morning. He's your righteousness this morning. He's your life, if you know him. Thank you for listening to this episode of Kings Church DC Podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.